I want to encourage you to turn to that passage of Scripture that Pastor Ben read a few moments ago from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, these important uh, instructions and reminders that Paul originally gave to the believers uh, collected together in the church at Ephesus, but indeed now two millennia later, a strong reminder to us about the grace of God. It is commonly said that Christianity is supremely about grace, and that is certainly true. We sing about grace, we write poems about grace, we name our churches and our children after grace. And if you look at the writings of the great Apostle Paul, you will discover that this theme, this thread of grace, in fact, this word is one of Paul's favorite words. Again and again, you you hear him utter it, grace and peace to you, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. My grace, God says, is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. But it seems to me that for all the times that we hear and read in church this word grace, that few of us, and I include myself, that few of us really plumb the depths of what it actually means. Grace. C.S. Lewis and, and, and many others have claimed that, that grace is Christianity's unique contribution to world religions. That is, that the notion that there is a love behind the universe that is completely unearned, undeserved, unstoppable, and inexhaustible. The beauty about following Christ is this, that unlike the other world religions that many are following today, there are no eightfold paths that Christians must follow, as in Buddhism. There are no codes of law that must be obeyed to draw close to God, as in Judaism. There are no levels of holiness that we need to achieve to be enjoying God's favor. But as a Christ follower, as a disciple of Jesus, you and I have come to declare something that is downright scandalous. It is this, that there is absolutely nothing that we can do to make God love us more than we are already loved by God. And there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. And if you think your performance, if you think your goodness, your righteousness is winning you any favor with God, then you are not following the Christ way. Because Christ's way is all about grace. Now that's difficult for us who live in this 21st century world. Because we live in an ungraceful world, a world that is very antagonistic toward grace. Because our lives, my life and yours, our lives are driven by merit. Our lives are driven by achievement. You're as good as the work you do. You're as good as the money you earn. You're as good as to the level that you rise in your own personal profession or vocation. 
We, we have such cliches as, as this that, that remind us that it's not a gift, but it's, it's merit. No pain, no gain. No such thing as a free lunch. Demand your rights. Get what you pay for. There's little grace involved when your mortgage payment is late. There's little grace involved when you're speeding on I-90. There's little grace involved when your child is competing for one of three positions in the entering class of the popular university. If a CEO has a string of bad quarters, he or she is gone. If a baseball manager makes a big mistake in the playoffs, he might as well pack his bags. And and the religion that many of us have encountered has also shown us little grace. Much of our religion today says get all the rules right. Keep your nose clean. Behave yourself. Don't commit any sins. Ask most religious people today what they need to do to get to heaven, and they will reply with something like, in order to get to heaven, you need to be a good person. But Jesus turned that whole way of thinking on its head. And for one thing, Jesus didn't seem to be particularly drawn to pious religious people. Who did Jesus hang out with? He hung out with rowdy fishermen and and a sleazy tax collector and a social revolutionary or two of women of ill repute. Jesus' followers were a lot of losers. They were lepers. They were blind men, and they were people who were down on their luck and who were out of work. They were people like you and me who were standing in need of grace. Not merit, not a program by which I earn my way to get God's favor, but a gift, a gift of grace. Well, you may ask the question, Well, Rick, why in the world do we need grace? Very simply, we need grace because all women and men are by nature spiritually dead and are separated from God. Did you pay attention to Paul's words as Ben read them in our Scripture reading this morning? In verses 1 through 3, Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. First condition, you were dead in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of this air, the spirit who is now at work in us, in those who are disobedient. You are enslaved. All of us also, Paul goes on, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were nature by nature objects of wrath. If you analyze and pick apart Paul's words there in those first few verses of chapter 2, what you will discover is that what Paul has said is, is that this is God's indictment on you and me, on human nature, that are apart from God's grace. It's what the Bible says about you and me as we stand before a holy God, Fear the Lord, Ben said in our scripture reading this morning from Leviticus, because God is what? He's holy. And as we stand before this holy God, we stand in fear because 
in our natural condition, there are three things that are true about me and true about you and true universally about the condition, the spiritual condition of men and women. There are these three things. That before you experienced the grace of God, you were dead, Paul says, verse 1. Before you experienced the grace of God, you were enslaved, verse 2. Before you experienced the grace of God, you were under the wrath of God, verse 3. Think of that. This is our condition. Before we come to Christ, before we say yes to God, before we repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, this was our condition. We were dead. We were enslaved by sin. We were under God's wrath. That's who we were. Could there be a more hopeless or helpless condition than this? To be dead, to be enslaved, to be under God's wrath. And this is what God says He sees when He peers down on our planet. Dead men, enslaved women, people under the wrath of God. Now, I know the tendency is is to dismiss this because it's not a pretty truth. We look at ourselves and say, well, really, after all, how dead can we really be? We don't look dead. To our own eyes, we look like we're very much alive. But that's not what God says. God says that apart from His grace, we are dead. We are dead men walking. And I know that that most of us think, well, you know, I'm not that bad of a person. Yeah, I'm not perfect. I've not reached it yet, but I'm not so bad after all. And I doubt if very many Christians would say that we deserve to go to heaven on our own achievement. We know too much about the Bible to say that. But I dare say that many Christians would not admit or think of themselves as being so bad after all. Because there is something within each one of us that causes causes us to think that basically at heart we are good. But Scripture tells us something very different. Scripture says that in our natural condition, theologians use a big thousand dollar word, that we are depraved. In other words, our hearts are cesspools and sewers. Our minds are enslaved by sin. We are dead, we are enslaved, and because we are dead in our transgressions and our trespasses, we are under God's wrath, a holy God who cannot take one iota of sin. He can't stand it. The Bible says that apart from grace, the whole human race and each one of us individually is spiritually dead, is in rebellion against God, is under God's judgment. We are guilty and unclean and worthy of eternal damnation. We are not simply unworthy of heaven apart from God's grace. But get this. We are, in our own condition, we are entirely worthy of hell. Entirely. This is what God says about you and me. It's also what God says about your husband or your wife or your child or your parents or your grandparents or your uncles or your aunts or your neighbors or your friends or your classmates or your business associates. That apart from God's grace, 
We are dead. We are enslaved. We are under God's wrath. Do you get the picture? Your good works, your kind deeds, your charitable giving, your attendance at a church service like this, your acts of kindness, when contemplated by a holy God, fear the Lord, Leviticus says, for the Lord is holy. When contemplated by a holy God, all of your works and your righteousness, Scripture says, are like filthy rags to a holy God. And I know that these are hard words to receive because we Americans like to think well of ourselves. We are proud of our scientific achievements, our high standard of living, our material, our material wealth, our status as the world's greatest superpower, our educational system that leads the world. We consider ourselves the best of the best, the greatest nation on earth, the greatest that ever was or ever will be, or so we think. But against that, we have these sobering words by Whitaker Chambers when he says that man without God is a beast. And man is never more beastly than when he is most intelligent about his beastliness. We are beasts who desperately need God's grace because we're not as good as we think we are. And in fact, we are far much more worse than we would ever care to admit. Discouraging. But before you're down in the mully grubs, finish Paul's thoughts. Look at the good news about the effects of God's grace. Paul continues on in verse 4 and he says, But because of His great love for us, this holy God is also rich in mercy. And look what He has done. He has made us alive with Christ, even when you were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is... Read this verse with me. Let's read it aloud together. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Here in Paul's words, we find the effects of grace. Here's our condition before we come to Christ. We are dead, we are enslaved to sin, we are under the wrath of God. But this holy God, who cannot tolerate sin whatsoever, is also rich in mercy, and He has sent His Son, Jesus. And we discover the effect of grace upon men and women who were once dead, enslaved, and under God's wrath. Look at how grace now defines us. Grace says, when you are under grace, it says that you are now spiritually alive. You have been made alive with Christ, verse 5 says. Not only that, but we are heavenly positioned. 
Verse 6 tells us that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. We are also billboards, I like this thought, billboards of mercy. You and I carry around a billboard that I am a recipient of God's mercy. Whereas before I came to faith in Christ, I was wearing a billboard that announced that I was under God's wrath. But hallelujah, not because of me, not because of my goodness, not because of what I've done, but when I repented of my sin and bent my knee before the Lord and invited Him into my heart and life, He saved me by His wondrous, amazing grace, and now I'm no longer a billboard saying, under God's wrath, I am now a billboard of God's mercy that says, I have received God's mercy, love, and grace. I believe that affords an amen or a hallelujah. But not only that, verse 8 says that we are not only billboards of mercy and heavenly positioned and spiritually alive, but we are honored children. That God has saved us by His special favor. And I believe that says it all. That God takes dead women and men and makes them alive. He takes women and men who are enslaved and seats them with Christ in heaven. He takes people who are condemned under the judgment of God and He plucks them out. The psalmist says, When I was sinking in miry clay, He saved me and He put my feet on solid ground. That's exactly what God in Christ has done for you and me if you are a recipient of His grace. He takes condemned men and saves them from judgment. And we are free. Grace is God's answer to the moral ruin of our world today. And this answer is complete. And this answer of grace requires nothing else. It is not, hear me, It is not grace plus something else. It is, as the Reformers said, sola gratia, grace alone. If your freedom, if your being made alive with Christ and being set in heavenly places and and, and being an honored children and a billboard of mercy, if your grace has anything to do with you, it is not grace. It's not, it's not about grace and your church attendance. It's not about grace and, and your discipline. It's not about grace and that you are saved. For it is by grace, Paul says, by grace alone that you've been saved. Grace creates an, a, a new resume for us. No longer dead, enslaved, and under God's wrath, but now in Christ We are spiritually alive, heavenly positioned, billboards of mercy, and honored children. It totally redefines who we are when you're a recipient of God's grace. It certainly did for a man named Mephibosheth. Talk about a redefined life. If you don't know the story, Mephibosheth was the son of David's bosom friend, Jonathan. Jonathan, who was the son of the first king of Israel, Saul. 
Mephibosheth, a name as long as his arm, was dropped like a cantaloupe out of a paper sack by a servant girl when he was age five. And Mephibosheth, as a result of that fall, became crippled and he could not walk. He couldn't walk. He couldn't work. His father Jonathan was dead. His grandfather Saul had disgraced God and was dead. Mephibosheth was cast aside. He was forgotten. Or was he? Not quite. Because something happens in Mephibosheth's life. It's something kind of like a Cinderella-like story. Because Mephibosheth, who was crippled and set aside and forgotten and abandoned, was not forgotten by the new king of Israel, David. David decided to show kindness to anyone who remained alive in Saul's household for the sake of his good friend, Jonathan. And because of David's kindness, Mephibosheth, whose resume was filled with forgottenness and forsakenness, Mephibosheth, who was formerly a cast-off because of David's kindness, was now invited as a guest of honor at King David's table. And 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 11 tells us, And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly with the king as though he were one of his sons. Chuck Swindoll provides us with a wonderful description of what the scene in David's palace may have looked like. Swindoll says, Gold and bronze fixtures gleam from the walls. Lofty wooden ceiling crown each spacious room. David and his children gather for an evening meal. Absalom, tanned and handsome, is there, as is David's beautiful daughter Tamar. The call to dinner is given, and the king scans the room to see if all of his children are present. But one is absent. Then all of a sudden, all those waiting in the dining room hear a sound from down the hallway. Clump, scrape, clump, scrape, clump, scrape. Finally, the person appears at the door, and he slowly shuffles to his seat. It is the lame Mephibosheth, seated in grace at the king's table. And the tablecloth covers his crippled feet. Now the feast can begin. Mephibosheth, from obscurity and forgottenness to a guest of honor at the king's table, from being a person who had absolutely no future to one who had a glorious future because now he was being treated as one of the king's own sons. Quite a move for Mephibosheth and quite a reminder to us. It is God's grace that takes a dead man or woman 
who once was enslaved by sin and under God's wrath and makes us spiritually alive, heavenly positioned, billboards of mercy, honored children of the King Himself. In my estimation, and for my money, there is no word that is sweeter to my ear than the word grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. It's what I need. Grace. It's what you need. Let's pray together. It's hard, God, for us to look at the truth, the scriptural truth about ourselves apart from Christ. We don't like to look in the mirror and recognize that there's nothing good within us. We don't like to think about the fact that we're not smart enough or strong enough or able enough to take care of ourselves and and to win your favor over by performance, by being good enough to deserve your mercy and your grace. And yet your Scriptures are so very clear. And when we look at ourselves, Lord, we, we are quick to admit right now that spiritually speaking, we are all Mephibosheths. We are all spiritually dark, rebellious, lost, needing a Savior. We are, before we came to You, O God, we were dead, we were enslaved by sin, and and we were under the wrath of a holy God. But thanks be to God who sent His Son, Jesus, and poured out His love, His mercy, and His grace, undeserved, unworthy, but still poured it out for sinners such as I, that because of Your grace, Lord, I'm no longer cast off. I'm no longer forgotten. But now I've been made spiritually alive. I've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. I've become a billboard of Your mercy. And, oh God, I'm one of Your favored children who's been invited as a guest of honor at Your table. And so, Lord, as we come to this table this morning and we take these elements, this bread and this wine, may we be reminded, oh God, that it had nothing to do with us. It's not about me. But it's all about what Christ has done for us in a once and for all payment made on Calvary. For it is by grace that we have been saved. It is the gift of God. And we gladly receive it today. What wondrous love is this, O my soul, my soul? What wondrous love is this?